Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Markets Show. I am John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle, joined today by Ian Smith, Companies Editor. How are you doing? Not too bad, John. How are you? Not too bad. And Emma Powell, News Editor. How are you doing, Emma? Yeah, good, thanks. Good. Good. Right. Uh, okay. So, busy week uh, this week on the results front. Yes, starting to die down, but there's still a fair amount. Did a fair few this week. You've started to round up your your views of the, the kind of three or four weeks that we've we've been through now in, in your taking stock column this week. So we've got some some kind of some kind of themes that we've yeah. identified. Five takeaways from or trends that we identified during the results season. Okay, so we'll have a chat about those in a minute, uh, and obviously some of this week's results. Um, it's been a momentous week, as you've uh, obviously discussed in uh, in seven days this week, Emma. Yeah. Uh, a momentous week where history has been made with the signing of a letter uh, that essentially begins the countdown of us leaving the European Union. Yeah, Article wow. 50. Article 50. It's amazing that nine months ago we held that referendum. It doesn't seem like nine months ago, but it seems like an eternity that that happened. I don't know. I don't know. But, but at the same time, it also seems like yesterday. It's, it's really weird. This year has been really weird. Last year, there were so many political events in one year, wasn't there? Indeed, I think we've got more to come this year. We have more to come this year, obviously. France very soon having elections, Germany having elections. It's, uh, yeah, crazy times, crazy times. We're not going to talk about the cover feature on this podcast because um, Algie Hall, who has written it, is a continuation of his Investors Essential series, looking at how some of the best managers out there in, in specific uh, investment styles actually do it, the, the tools they use, the ratios they use. He's, uh, he's looked at value this week and he's put a podcast together. Yeah, he's got a couple of um, value-focused fund managers that he's interviewed on there, along with Mark Robinson, our deputy company's editor. So they talk through the kind of strategies that um, private investors can put into place when they want to look at what companies provide good value. Indeed. So when you finish with this podcast, go and have a listen to that one. Right. Let's start with the news then. Emma, where should we start? Where shall we start? Well, an obvious place to start is Theresa May writing to the European Council president, who then tweeted, we're going to miss you or we miss well, you. He said it in a speech, actually. It was quite uh, moving. He did actually look quite upset that, well, that he had received this letter. and It was a, quite, it was a resigned it's speech. It's a very sad right? day if you believe in the project of European integration, as obviously he does. Yes, and because this, and f- from his point of view, this could be the start of something quite bad with the elections we have this year, a further deterioration in the integrity of the European Union itself. So, yeah, viewing it from his perspective, I can see why he was a little mm. bit melancholic. I mean, obviously, this is the start of a very long process now, and they've got two years. Yeah, two years. Well, two years for the the actual uh, to actually have unless unless the unless all twenty seven member states and the UK decide to extend the deadline. If they don't, then it will be March 2019. It's amazing. So we've already seen companies starting to make little baby steps in terms of working out how they will distribute their wares in the European Union post-Brexit. Lloyds of London. Lloyds of London. So they're planning on opening an office in Brussels. And then I saw a story from Bloomberg just before we came down saying that um, JP Morgan were in talks to buy a building in Dublin that could house up to 1,000 people potentially. Um, and I suppose the third one, AIG, Global Insurance Group, are looking at opening uh, an insurance office in Luxembourg, I think. So you've already got financial services businesses thinking, if we want to distribute stuff in within the European Union post-Brexit, we've got to start planning now in terms of you know, what that might look like. Seems very sensible. 
temperature yeah, of the airlines. Yeah, uh, and I think so it's something you mentioned in seven days, Emma. Yeah, obviously EasyJet has now got, or it's it's about to close its application for um, an EU air operator certificate. So that'll mean it can do kind of intra-EU flights. Mm-hmm. There's also, there was a statement from uh, Michael O'Leary from Ryanair saying that the aviation industry should be top of the agenda. Of course he would say yeah, that. Yeah, very subjective. So yeah, I think it is something they're definitely worried about. There's been talk of their um, shareholders then having to be majority EU if this happens. So yeah, I got it's very say, interesting. I, yeah, that, I mean, that majority EU thing, when I, when I, I must admit I didn't know about that until quite recently. I mean, in fact, I don't think many of us knew about many things uh, mm. that are emerging as part of this, this Brexit discussion until very recently. I mean, Article 50, did you know about that this time last year? I didn't course we didn't anyway so a an airline operating intra-eu flights has to be majority owned by eu shareholders yeah i think it all comes down to um this the current currently they're regulated by the eu open skies regulation Mm -hmm. but obviously when once the uk leaves the eu they're gonna have to get a separate eu yeah and i'm sure they will find find something i i I was gonna say i find the whole shareholding thing in uh, in relation to intra-eu flights to be quite odd Mm. Um, given what we do know about the nature of international capitalism and share ownership, when you look at many companies listed in the UK, their share ownership, yes, it tends to be concentrated in the UK, but, but it's actually very international uh, in scope. Anyway, this bit of regulation, when I thought about it, does seem to me to be a bit of protectionist legislation designed to protect flag-carrying airlines in Europe. Hey, whatever. EU, <laughs> single market. Would Anti-protectionist. They, yeah, and would they say, yeah, shock horror, but would they say that to be able to effectively regulate a company and really call it to account within the European Union area, that it helps if it's, you know... What does it matter? That's what, what does it, what I, does I, it I matter mean, whether it's 49% owned or 51% owned by EU shareholders? And what even is an EU shareholder? Mm. You know, in, the, in, 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 in the world of, you know, the kind of cross-border finance, what does it even mean? It's a ridiculous rule. The more I be, think about it. You'd think it would more be about where the holding company is you would think as it, opposed it, to the actual ownership. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Because it doesn't, yeah. Ownership, well. ownership is kind of, it just seems to be largely irrelevant in this day and age. Yeah, yeah. But hey, hey. Anyway, let's move on. Let's move on before I, um, off my, uh, my, my high horse here. There has been one casualty of Brexit so far. Possibly a casualty of Brexit. Well, possibly a casualty of Brexit. I'm guessing that you're talking about LSE Deutsche Börse. Well, of course I am. Yeah, so obviously that, that's that's collapsed, that deal now. That was very expected, though, after they basically said to the European Commission, we're not going to do what you want. Mm, um, I thought the timing was, was absolutely impeccable. And, mm. and almost, you could look at that and think, that's no accident that they've yeah, chosen both, to announce this today. Both sides were, yeah, I completely agree. And and what we talked about in the podcast when it was originally announced, the European Commission's requirement for the deal to go through that LSE saw as overly onerous, um, it did look like they, at that point they were both sides were coming up with a convenient excuse not to do a deal that wouldn't really find it very difficult to work in a Brexit environment. It would have had to have also had clearance from the Hess, which is a, a region in in Germany, um, where Frankfurt is, basically, it would have had to have had approval from also the government, the regional government there, um, who were very vocal about basically 
wanting some kind of headquarters in Frankfurt. You come back to that holding company thing. They were worried the holding company was was going to be in London. Can you effectively have the clearing house for a huge amount of financial transactions within Europe to be outside of the European Union and outside of the Eurozone? Which mm. is something when it comes to the clearing of derivatives that France in particular and other uh, Euro countries have been pushing for a, a number of years to move some of that outside of London. Indeed. I mean, it's interesting that the asset in question uh, that, that, that basically ended up being the kind of stumbling block in this whole deal is an Italian asset. Mm. And, and in fact, the stock exchange is a very Italian entity. I mean, it is a European entity already. They said it was because, um, you know, when they originally, um, I think it was last month, LSE said, basically, we're not going to divest of our stake in MTS. They said it will be very difficult because the Italian regulators will have to negotiate with them and they're probably obviously you know really not going to like it so yeah that that was kind of the reason given but it's quite straightforwardly in a, a monopoly that would have been created or quasi monopoly when it came to clearing fixed income um, and repo transactions because LSE has LCH Clearnet and Deutsche Borsa has Eurex um, so Marguerite Vestager the um, who's in charge of competition regulation at the European Commission said yeah it would have created a monopoly which is interesting because it wasn't in the products that you talked about john when we talked about it at the time that wouldn't be a monopoly no it wouldn't be in a monopoly but from your i'm i'm saying there are other areas such as the ones you highlighted where it also you could argue that it would have acted against um you know competition Mm. in important and growing areas such as index provision yeah I, i would say so i mean you know Whatever you think, whatever the reasons that it still collapsed, the market took it reasonably well. So I think it's odd that the shares rose because, A, I would expect this to be a little bit of a bid premium still in the price. I think that that's true. But also because the future of the LSE, especially in the context of, of Brexit, is more unclear than it was six months ago. Yeah, in some ways. And also, obviously, the the reason, one of the big reasons for the deal was so they could compete with, you know, the big American indice owners and the New York Stock Exchange. So it is very bizarre that it that it kind of was rose 2%. But the, the results you analysed recently showed that they ha- have very good underlying trading. And it might be that the death knell on the deal that was sounded when um, that was that condition that we spoke about, that might have taken some of the hopes you know, some of the bid premium out of it in terms of the market's expectation that this was going to go through. You know, it did preface it, so in terms of the share price movement on the announcement of something that most people thought was going to happen. But I did think those set of results demonstrated that LSE has good underlying growth. Um, And this is, looking historically, just yet another failure of that company to merge with uh, European or global institutions. Well, who knows? Because I, th- I you know, I, I think I'm right in saying that there is has been speculation that that actually, if uh, Deutsche Börse is out of the way, then it opens the door for another deal potentially, and uh, and potentially a deal with the North American uh, exchange group. Yeah, exactly. I, and I do think you can't understress the um, the political aspect to this. Marguerite Vestager has actually said about the deal that the European economy depends on well functioning capital markets which is an obvious statement. But actually, I think that casts light on the Brexit process as well. It's very hard to see how this primary markets operator could have existed kind of outside of the EU at a time where there's this huge and messy divorce likely between the kind of financial centre of Europe and a lot of European businesses looking to raise money. just looked increasingly unachievable once we found out about the process of Brexit and um, what the likely outcome was. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think it's really inter- an interesting deal. I think this is an interesting one to watch. Um, obviously, the deal is dead, but but actually what happens to both LSE and Deutsche and 
And actually, I think this could be like the lens through which we uh, we really kind of start to see the impacts of Brexit on the financial sector in uh, in Europe. So uh, I'm sure you'll keep us posted, Emma. Of course. Um, let's talk about fines. Big week for fines. Fines, yeah. BT BT's not had a good time of it, really. Well, actually, no, they got off quite lightly from the. Um, well, I think they got off lightly from, because their services from... are appalling. But um, there you go. <laughs> they got off quite <laughs> Just lightly. Personal opinion. They got off quite lightly from Ofcom, but. This time they have had a fine. It's actually the largest fine Ofcom's ever, ever imposed upon somebody. And that's for 300 million for compensation to customers. So it's delays over lines being installed. Yeah, and the share price, well, I mean, what happened there? The share price didn't actually fall very much. And um, I think from talking to our uh, telecoms specialist, Megan, she was saying that she thinks they're already quite, they're already kind of disappointments already priced in with that company. Do you think Ofcom is now going to be more minded to be tough on BT? It's like we've let you have a, have open reach, but we're going to come after you for every problem that you create. Maybe they've been listening to this podcast because that's what they should be doing. Absolutely, I think I think you might be right there. Well, we'll have to see. I mean, the competitors of BT and the users of Open Reach, which is in itself a statement that suggests that OpenReach shouldn't be part of BT. And um, th- those businesses are going to be pressuring OpenReach and Ofcom over OpenReach's service in this new um, structure that's being created. Absolutely. That said, this would have been the result of an investigation that would have been going on for a long, long time. So, exactly. so you can't necessarily link it to a, a decision that was made two weeks ago. But, no. But there you go. All right, I mean, let's talk about Tesco, uh, which also had a big fine this week. Again, yeah. a muted share price reaction. Yeah, again, but I think this, you know, this has been ongoing for a while and the muted share price reaction also could have been because sometimes when a decision is made, at least it's kind of done and it draw a line draws a line oh, under it. Certainty. Certainty, exactly. But what we're talking about is is Tesco is the FCA fining Tesco. Um and it's actually the first time they've ever fined a listed company for market abuse. And that was obviously over its two thousand and fourteen uh, misstating of profits they said it was going to be profits for the first half were going to be 1.1 billion obviously that year they went on to make huge loss 6.3 billion and yes they've been forced to pay a 129 million pound fine and also compensation to shareholders that's um, the interesting bit so potentially readers of our magazine who would have bought the shares at a certain amount of time uh, are in line to get some money back here. You would have had to have bought them net company stock between 29th of August and 19th of September 2014. But crucially, you do have to prove there was a genuine economic loss. So, so if you bought them and sold them when the share price slumped? No. No? So how do you prove a genuine economic loss then? I think it's if you bought them after what was seen as a misstatement or an abusive right. market that, statement. That much I get. Uh, right. And then... But then you might have hung on to them for a while and you might be in the, in profit now. Yes. No, that's, good. that's a good point. Uh, but I think it's that you would have you bought them at a higher price than you would have had to have bought by them. Because it would have utterly... Uh, the, the argument would be that it kind of inflated them because you thought that the profits were going to be higher than they were during that time. Yeah, Tesco's has been in the doldrums for quite some time. I mean, if you yeah. want to find out and you are a um, Tesco shareholder, you, there's a KPMG uh, website that's set up to help you work out. We actually don't have the address here, but it's pretty easy to find on the old Google. But um, you can go and, go and work it out. But yeah, it's a complicated one, but it's the first time that they have um, issued such a judgment. Indeed, or, never, never, or seen, any, never yeah. seen anything like it. 
Never, I mean, you know, we've heard of the possibility of class actions against management who've, you know... And we've had RBS, obviously, where... And, and the RBS shareholder action group, and, you know... Uh, yeah, but this is the first time I've actually seen anything put into action that, that would enable, enable private shareholders to get money back. Yeah, and it, it, I think it's interesting in light of... We did a special podcast talking about profit warnings um, earlier this year, and or only a few weeks ago, actually. And one of the things that came out of that is the dissatisfaction that investors... Uh, express when there is the initial admission by a company that something has gone wrong and yet the criticism sometimes that they are not totally forthcoming about the size of the problem so for me looking at this it's the fca saying coming down hard on a company under understating the impact of a problem that they've identified but in you the could, first instance you could so have it was misleading argued, the market in that sense but right? you could have argued that the top management didn't know the full picture which, which they may may be culpable for to some degree. But, yeah, but I would but say surely, it's your yeah. job to know the full picture. You're being, it's, paid, it's, you're being paid an awful lot of money to you know also, the picture. You're also paying an auditor an awful lot of money to, uh, I, I to, agree to pick to up an on extent, these problems. And you're paying your, your you know staff, your, your layers of middle management in the business to, 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 to operate in a certain way. So You're right. and you don't. All, so, but I do think that obviously the FCA has made a determination here mm. that they knew enough to have said more and they didn't so i said that must have been part of the investigation i completely agree with you you can't i mean it's easy to kind of jump on the board's back say so. just um yeah. my my concern here is that the pandora's box has been opened mm. and you know that it paves the way for any company that that, that mis misleads investors they're not necessarily deliberately or you know a profit warning comes about not because the company is deliberately trying to mislead its investors but because things didn't work out how they expected it to because they don't have the ability to pre predict the future. Yeah, and in, if you follow that point on, I suppose this could be another reason why companies turn away from the public equity market. Mm. It's just a, it, it's another avenue where you can get hurt as a corporate because you haven't quite navigated the... That's being very generous, I think, in this case. It's being so generous. I mean, it is being generous. But do you think um, this is a very different case to just, you know, another company having a profit warning? Yeah, but I mean, did did, uh, did RBS ever end up paying any money out for having bought AB and AMRO without having done proper due diligence? Yeah, and, that, and that's the point, isn't it? In the, in the 2008 rights issue, the statements that were made about the companies yeah. on which the people made a decision whether to buy the shares, I think it's once something has been known, it's whether the company is then forthcoming enough about the size of the problem. I do think that is an issue. Yeah. That work well, that's why they're, they're facing the civil case at the moment. Yeah, work for lawyers. There was something else interesting at Tesco this week, uh, which is obviously some, uh, some of its major shareholders expressing their opinions on the proposed takeover of Booker. They don't like it very much. No, Schroeder's and Artisan Partners, who own 9% between them, have said they're not very happy. They think that Tesco should basically, given you know the tough time that it has had, that it should be just concentrating on its recovery rather than making such a large acquisition. Did they put out a statement? I mean, is this all that's been said? It's. Uh... I think that is pretty much it. Yeah, the, the context is that Tesco's in this big recovery mode, or likes to think it is, and the share price is definitely pricing it for a, a recovery. Um, but part of that recovery is around how they can um, increase their margins. Now, it's very difficult for them to do that because it's quite difficult for them to increase their like-for-like -like sales because well, of the sales pressure. It's almost impossible. It's I almost mean, if you impossible. Think about, if you think about it, you know, they're in a competitive marketplace with yeah. some, some really aggressive challenges in the form of Audi and Lidl and also some very aggressive uh, incumbents in the form of Sainsbury's and, and Morrison, which is also trying to stage recovery too. They, they face uh, inflationary pressure on food, partly as a result of the valuation of sterling, uh, the potential risk around how 
how food, the food markets of Europe work in, so if in, they, in the two or three years ahead. So, so it's almost the, the recovery in itself is an impossible challenge. If you Surely can't change buying something interesting that diversifies the business in a clever way, that's the way to go. Yeah, and that's definitely the argument of management. I suppose the argument from the value investors that got on the on the back of this uh, recovery story, they would say that okay, it's difficult to do stuff at the top line, but you can do stuff in terms of the costs uh, that you book against those mm. sales. So there's two sides to try and improve that margin. And that towards the end of last year, we started to see Tesco make progress um, almost on both counts. So it, the recovery was starting to come through and this just confuses the picture. To pick up on your point, Tesco's management have said, actually the Booker acquisition helps us to kind of change the record. I think it really does. Yeah. I the really f- like Booker, personally, I really like Booker as a business. Well, Sorry, I, was, I, was gonna, I was just going to say, on that note, actually, there's another way of looking at it, which is how good a deal is this for Booker shareholders? I, think it's a, I don't think it's the greatest deal for Booker shareholders. No, I think it's a better I, deal I, for Tesco yeah. shareholders. I really do. Of course, yeah. And there was a good quote, in the, I think it was in the FT, saying, you know, if shareholders on both sides are pretty peeved, it's, it's a good deal. It's a good deal, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, if I was a Booker shareholder, and I would love to have been a Booker shareholder, had I not written about it extensively over the past five years, it was definitely, you know, one of the shares that I would have owned had I not been in such a compromised position of writing and editing this magazine yeah I, I'd be thinking wow well, why you know this this is a business strong enough to go it alone and continue to to, to reap returns for me, me the shareholders they've just had a Q4 actually um, but apart from tobacco sales which obviously have been hit by the, the ban on the packaging their like for likes are up quite strongly yeah. so that they are doing very well as a business but just to make this point if this Tesco Booker deal gets embroiled in regulators looking at the impact that it's going to have uh, on the on the kind of wider grocery and the supply chain because of the market share, which is the reason that Tesco is buying Booker and how it kind of solidifies their supply chain. If this deal gets embroiled in that and diverts a huge amount of attention from the company and a lot of cost and ultimately comes to nothing, I will you'll feel some sympathy for the shareholders who thought big diversion. Yeah, that that I can understand. But but Schroeder's an artisan. Did they actually come out and say, "Oh, we're worried about the regulatory risk behind this deal"? Not so much. But they did say it's a big distraction from the work on the recovery. But yeah, I, I take your point. Yeah, I mean, it, no, I, th- I think it's an interesting deal. I mean, I do I do accept that there there is that risk. However, I also this which is why I think it's a clever deal. I I think it's actually you know, if they try to buy another supermarket, yeah. the regulators would yeah never gonna, in, never going to happen. Yeah, it's vertical integration, it's vertical integration again. which yeah. which gets around those those rules and actually takes them into new markets. A lot of Booker's business and certainly a lot of Booker's growth is coming from the food service side of things, selling selling to restaurants, selling to you know, and, and it's cash and carry business, selling to to small shops and retailers. It's that's not Tesco's business. Yeah. Anyway, I I, I think it's really interesting if you look at what Sainsbury's have done with home retail. They have a different vision for a grocer that's about being a multi-channel retailer, trying to take on Amazon by trying to do as much as possible and solidifying themselves as a retailer that way. Whereas Tesco, like you say, it diversifies them in a different way. Yeah, I think it's yeah. really interesting. It's two visions for kind of the future of grocery, and we don't really know which one is going to out. And, me- and meanwhile, you have Morrison, which is essentially retreating into you know its core, which is which is supermarkets. Exactly, um, and not doing too badly. And not doing too badly as well. So yeah, three different models of uh, of, of supermarket recovery stories here. Uh, which one's going to win out? Who knows? But I think they all look interesting in their own own different ways. Which which is, I also think is good for shareholders. You have options now in the grocery sector. Anything else before we move on to the results section, um, Emma? Was there anything else that maybe, you really wanted to talk about well, in seven days? Maybe, maybe um, one other bit of news, which um, actually I think you'll find interesting, which is uh, Babcock. Why, why will I find this? Nuclear decommissioning. 
You're into energy and nuclear. I am. Well, actually, one of these sites is, is not too far from where I live. <laughs> and you, <laughs> ding, human hey, bingo guys, there. Definitely <laughs> interested. But there was a muck up by the government on its tendering for the Magnox contract that's owned by the Cavendish Floor Partnership, which is 65% owned by Babcock. Mm. Mag- um, Magnox were the old, was the basically the old fleet of reactors built in yeah, the, uh, so in 12 the 60s. Sites. Um, the Nuclear De- Decommissioning Authority has, um, has basically terminated that contract from 2019. So Babcock will have been involved for five years rather than the 14 years that they expected. And that's just because the, the government materially underestimated the amount of work involved which meant that it could have been subject to a legal challenge Mm. Um, the bad news for taxpayers is that it's cost around 85 million in court cases last year to settle with two people involved so not great news really and it's taking a chunk out of babcock's order book which is not great presumably though this work will be retended yeah and babcock uh, has a good chance of winning it well, yeah, I mean, there's other there's other people as well, like Atkins, for instance. They mm-hmm. do a lot of work in this area, so you know they could always be one. I wouldn't be surprised who who did bid for that. I mean, it's more interesting, I think, for the kind of question over outsourcing generally, and um, you know, tendering and government tendering, and actually how accurate it is when they kind of assess the work and the price they put on it. It's actually been investigated at the moment. This case. Yeah, um, yeah. No, I get, I get that. We, I mean, we, we've got Tom Dines, our new writer, is working on something about outsourcing and how the model yeah. uh, and the flaws in the model um, are at the moment. But yeah, this is a good example. Isn't the problem um, with some of these nuclear reactors that they're so unique and bespoke in terms of how they were originally built? It makes them very difficult to decommission. I read that as actually. The I, I thought the general problem with nuclear reactors was that they were quite difficult to decommission. <laughs> and, and actually, when you build one, you actually have no idea of the costs of winding it down once its useful life is complete. So it doesn't surprise me in the slightest that they've underestimated the volume mm. of work here. Mm. And actually, that kind of begs questions about the whole future of, of nuclear power uh, and the kind of new fleet of reactors that people have talked about being built here, is that, yes, whilst up front... Well, actually, in the, in the case of the new ones, they, up front they're very expensive, but at the back end, once they're finished, they can be even more expensive. This is a good example of why it's not necessarily the answer to our energy problems. Well, and just look at what's going on with Toshiba, which we've also well, got indeed, on seven days. Absolutely. So, you know, the, the costs and the impairments they've had to take against that US business. So this is the bankruptcy of uh, or bankruptcy protection that's been entered into by Westinghouse, which we've Yeah, in the US, before. in the US, yeah. Um, they've, they've said that the UK is not, not going to be affected, but I mean, there's been all sorts of problems there. They, they acquired some assets that basically weren't worth as much as they thought they were when they originally did the deal. They're over running on projects in the US in Georgia and South Carolina so they're having massive pro- problems and, it, and that nuclear division accounts for about a third of Toshiba's profits it's massive I think they're also estimating Toshiba management came out a few days ago with a trillion yen loss but it's just yeah, a question about nuclear isn't it it's increasingly difficult to find anyone that can fund these projects and now it's very hard to take apart the old projects. Well, indeed. I mean, you know, and, and actually EDF, French utility, um, are obviously uh, involved in the UK's next generation of nuclear. I mean, how, how is that affected debate. by Brexit? I mean, mm-hmm. uh, indeed, political uh, and issues And ownership here. and foreign ownership. And, and you've got the whole Euratom thing, which is about nuclear research. And you've got the, the some regulation around uh, the transfer of nuclear fuel, which was cited by Michel Barnier, the UK, the EU's trade negotiator. So, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of in the eye of the storm of... Uh, of uh, of the whole Brexit thing as well. Don't go near nuclear. <laughs>
don't live unfortunately, unfortunately, I have no choice because I live right near one, <laughs> albeit one that's only being decommissioned. Right, let's talk about results. Ian, let's start with taking stock because uh, rounding up the last few weeks of hell uh, would be a good place to start. I mean, there were a few different uh, things that we found interesting uh, as we went through this first results season of the year for companies either re- reporting their full year 2016 results or for many of them half-year results to the end of December or end of January. One thing was the miners. Digging up a dividend, Anglo-American is planning to rejoin the dividend list later this year, but Rio Tinto and BHP Billiton both kind of upped their shareholder income during this period, announced buyback programs or share buybacks or bond buybacks after their cash flows improved. So that was definitely, you know, further rebound. That this op- this yeah. is largely a story about capital discipline, though, and a scaling back of capital expenditure and, and, and a focus on operation efficiency. Exactly. And that discipline, suddenly the kind of pedal to the metal on the, that operational discipline was taken off by the sudden rise in the commodities that these mi- these companies mine. And I suppose one contention there that I think we make as a title is actually, although obviously the rising price of the asset of the commodities massively improved their fortunes and therefore their income, there is still some underlying improvements that they've made operationally that might yet um, yeah, c- c- come to help them. You know, in, were those prices not to keep up? Indeed, and I think that's a point that Alex Newman makes in the section focus this week about gold miners, mm. that they have benefited from from the strength of the gold price over the last year or so, um, albeit with a few ups and downs in there. But what they have actually mostly all done in the interim period is is really get their, their, their cost of production down. Yeah, exactly. And those are the kind of metrics that we can use to compare the companies um, alongside things like how much income they're paying out which is sometimes just a function of the board's generosity rather than the underlying performance. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned uh, Royal Dutch Shell in, in your taking stock piece as well. And I guess the oil industry has, has taken a similar approach in, in the face of what, what were at a point very rapidly falling oil prices. And actually, they too have benefited from a bounce back in commodity prices and oil prices just at a time when they've got themselves much more lean as well. Exactly right. And that cash flow is helping. I also compared them in a way to Aviva. It's another company where in this example, it's actually an acquisition they made that's providing a lot of cash flow. But these are both short-term effects that are helping them um, improve their cash generation, support the dividend, which has supported the share prices. The only question I suppose I ask with both of those companies, what's the longer-term plan? Which is quite interesting. I think with Shell, because they've retrenched so much from spending, that's great for cash flows now. And if that's, op- if that's cost discipline, that's brilliant. But if it's less capex where where's the pipeline in terms of the future business and that's the question for, i'd say analogous with the question for aviva which is post the benefits of the friends life acquisition where's the growth going to come from in the group you spoke to aviva this week didn't you emma i did i spoke to their head of uk insurance if you want to hear the answer to that question you can Just, uh, listen to that podcast yeah, check out my another podcast. one you're gonna be you're gonna be there all night listening to our <laughs> podcasts right what else have we got uh that i see you mentioned the high street not necessarily on the face of it a great time for to be a retailer no, and we keep, obviously, well, many people keep predicting the death of the high street. One thing I think that was quite tangible during this results season, and we have next, actually, on the next page, um, talking about the increase in costs that they faced in 2016 uh, and the inc- increased costs they're going to face in 2017. And that's something that we saw with Weatherspoons as well, and I've mentioned that before, um, the projected £20 million in additional costs ranging from electricity to uh, certain excise taxes to business rates, minimum wage. It's an expensive time to be employing people, especially a lot of people on the minimum wage, on the high street selling things. See, I'm intrigued that all of those examples you cite of higher higher cost items on their uh, on their P and L are not 
the kind of Brexit related items that are often blamed most recently for the for the troubles of the high street. Yes. Uh, I.e. the something higher in pork, higher and the higher pork. higher cost of goods bringing in from overseas. So these are these are issues that that kind of would have been there regardless of whether we had voted to stay or leave in the yes. EU. I do think that the you know the valuation of sterling, the impact that that has had, to some extent, there's been currency hedges that have protected those companies from some of that impact, and so we'll see that unwind and the the fuller impact. But yeah, I I agree with you, and I think that it was no surprise that in the budget, Philip Hammond said that the Treasury needs to find a better way of taxing the digital part of the economy. There's very much an understanding after the whole business rates Ferrari that certain retailers have it really good because they don't happen to have a bricks and mortar operation. No, they still have they still have property costs though. They yeah, and they still employ people. And distribution. But are they being as effectively taxed, or is too much of the burden being borne by traditional businesses on the high street? Yes, that's a political question. What, what's interesting with Next um, and the shares rallied on on the results was that they're doing a huge amount to cut back on costs. Next, a business that we always talk about that Lord Wilson is very good at being overly cautious in the market and then managing expectations and then outperforming. And I think this is quite a good example where the increased productivity, the efficiencies in the supply chain they've managed to find, uh, managed to just about more than offset those high, higher prices, higher costs, sorry. And then in 2017, they think they can actually, they've already identified savings that can eat into a lot of that. But yeah, the longer term question is, you know, are these higher costs going away? And once you've made the amount of cost efficiencies that you can make, is this does this model work? Or can these businesses transition to online effectively while managing the costs of the bricks and mortar estate? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting on the same page as the next result, we have the Ted Baker result, which is a company that we actually do fundamentally like, which, which is much more internationally diversified. Yeah, it's a different story. It's a different story. I mean, they had this... I mean, some people would say it was a one-off, which is... Um, Further costs that they would say, I suppose, are one-off in terms of moving to um, a new distribution centre. That's one-off. It is one-off. I mean, you could. I kind of think the best way to view it is that it's 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 they got their capex expectations wrong in terms of you know how much it will cost in investing in this. It's kind of a top-up to pass costs. But mm. yeah, I'd say it's a one-off. You know, it's they probably under, underestimated the cost that would come from this process. But truly, yeah, that, that's a one-off, and it's about improving their their distribution. Um, but yeah, a lot of people are kind of stripping those out. But uh, apart from that, the um, the actual sales figures across the retail business, the wholesale business and the licensing business. And internationally. And internationally all rose. It's also managing that, yeah, that online trans transition well. So yeah, it's a okay. company we'll continue to be positive on. Okay. Uh, house builders, you yeah. mentioned Persimmon. We they are, had a great week. Yeah, had a great week. They are just very expensive again. So it's that age old question. Uh, can the can the run keep continuing? Is there, to buy them at twice, at you know the shares at twice their forward net asset value per share um do you have to be very confident about the um house prices uh, residential house prices well the other side of the argument is that they are paying out huge amounts of income so in terms of if you want to see how they compare have a look at the last week's sector focus which you find online which actually compares the house builders on uh, their dividend and takes a look at their prospects but yeah they're, they're definitely approaching multiples having fallen very um low after the EU referendum, they are now approaching uh, all-time highs in terms of you know uh, forward book value multiples. Indeed, I, I actually got an email from a reader about um, house builders this week who suggested that we were being a bit too uh, cautious in our stance because they had ceased to be cyclical businesses because of the massive imbalance in demand, supply and demand for housing in the UK. An end to and in boom fact, and in fact, and I think you, you actually sum, sum this, this whole situation on the economics very neatly in your piece here, Ian, 
with, uh, with uh, four words, supply, demand, yada, yada. <laughs> well, that's the kind of thing that uh, a good editor should really be taking out of copy. That's, that's all I have No, to I kept it in because <laughs> I thought it summed it up neatly. I mean, it, because it kind of was the essence of this letter. No, no, everything's yeah. changed. They're no longer cyclical. I just, really? Yeah. This, this is, we've, I'm pretty sure we've written about this in the magazine in the last couple of weeks that when you get lulled into thinking that something is no longer cyclical, that is when you're going to make a bad investment. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it happens time and time again. I mean, what, what we do know is that they've, and this is yada yada again, because we say this a few times that they've improved, they've improved their balance sheets. They're not as um, levered. Um, they have a huge amount of cash on the balance sheet. The government has tried again and failed in many people's eyes to intervene in this market. So in terms of the things that can affect them, that would lead you to think, hey, good times are going to continue to roll. But there are other major factors such as house well, prices. House prices, political, <laughs> risk, political risk, Brexit. Yep. We don't really know. You know they, they were sold very heavily in the aftermath of the referendum. They've recovered since then. But, you know, as, as the you know, details become clear about where our future relationship with EU might be, that might change. Exactly. And to um, buy at this price, I think you are, you know, you've got to be fairly bullish that things are going to be fine in the near term. At the same time, there is a big kind of income argument. But yeah, I wouldn't declare an end to boom and bust for the house builders. No, 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 absolutely not. Absolutely not. Um, uh, one more thing. You mentioned globalisation is good. This is about diversification. And you've spoken with specific reference about recruiters yeah so a, a sector that emma used to cover i mean at various times recruiters have stressed or understressed their overseas exposure is that fair to say yeah i remember actually when i first when i first joined um and i did cover recruiters and it was the beginning of 2015 i believe and we were all in recovery mode uk economy was recovering and there was big hiring going on in financial services so the shares did very well actually because i think investors very much like it when the UK part of the business starts doing well then obviously they came right off because again they're highly highly cyclical businesses and around the whole you know referendum they they really suffered because obviously this uncertainty people not hiring whereas in Europe a big benefit that you have there is that contract is more popular than permanent because of the labor laws are so tight so they did really well there so some of the recruiters definitely would emphasize the operations they have in Europe. Yeah, so, and we saw that in this results season. Again, they were starting to stress their overseas exposure and their diversification ahead of Brexit. And isn't it great to be hiring and um, working on hiring people overseas? So, Hayes um, did well in continental Europe and Asia Pacific for Page Group, um, excluding Brazil. Latin America was good. Australasia was good. Europe was good again. So, diversification being stressed by the businesses. Like Emma says, they're kind of at the sharp end when it comes to economic changes. They tell um, you what's going on in the cycle often before a lot of companies will. It will show in a lot of other companies' results. All right. But well, yeah. Worth keeping an eye on. Okay. I talk about diversification in my editorial because basically my editorial is about why the hell are we worrying about Article 50. Um, if you had built a proper portfolio, it would be resilient enough to withstand pretty much anything, any specific pol political or event risk that, that, uh, that the world can throw at it at any given point. Anything else in the results section that you wrote this week, Emma, that uh, you, you, particularly, you think is particularly noteworthy? I must admit, I thought AA was awful. I, they were horrible results. Oh, really? I thought yeah. they were all... I didn't, oh, I didn't like them. What was your... I don't know. There's just something about them. They just they seem... They've got incredibly high debt still, overly, but it is coming down. Overly indebted, struggling for growth. I don't, I, I don't, is this an old private equity? Exactly. That's why the they suffered and, so badly. And yeah. when they floated, they had to put so much investment in because it had been stripped out. Um, yeah, it's just got, it's just got this... 
the stench of private equity about just, it. <laughs> just compare it. I mean, compare it with another result that Emma wrote, Saga. You know, as a business, is is um, yeah, kind of come back into public ownership, but as successfully reducing its debt, it's successfully doing what AA, AA is trying to do actually, which is to cross sell to its member with other products. Whereas AA, yeah, the worry in the growth story is can yeah. Well, Saga oh. have got the advantage that they deal with primarily the over 50s, so yeah. they can just cross sell. They're, they're selling, trying to sell to one set of a population. Whereas AA, I mean, the debt is massive that they're trying to get down. They have so long, a very long way to go. I think that's what struck me. Um, I have been a customer at times as well. I mean, you know, I, I, they sell insurance, they sell all sorts of things, but I mean, you know, it's insurance and car breakdown services mainly. And, you know, there's, there's not really very large cross-selling opportunity there well that's the point you mean you have to make if you want to reduce your debt you have to generate cash right? well indeed well, they are struggling to do that and our saga are doing that but saga so. are a very different business saga yeah. is in the cruise business it's in the publishing business yeah. it's in the retail business they're looking the insurance at going business. into um doing financial services products as well actually and all sorts of things but I'm not, view surprised. them as companies that are in the in the membership business in terms of they have a group Absolutely. of people and it's just so happens that Saga's membership is much easier they have better relationships with them it's much easier to sell them all manner of things whereas AA they've really struggled to kind of cross-sell products because they don't have much to cross-sell I think that's my my point yeah yeah um, I mean it's, it's interesting actually that you mentioned Saga um, Mr. Bearble's column this week is about uh, the the aging population and, and how you can actually invest in, in what is an inexorable trend uh, and actually Saga is one of the companies he picked in a, in a little uh, aging population portfolio mm. uh, a year ago. Actually, guess what? So out of his, out of his five stocks he picked, Harley Davidson, <laughs> Striker, which makes replacement hips, The Gap, why that's in an elderly person's portfolio. Um, maybe it's where he buys his clothes. It sounds <laughs> like Saturday, Saturday <laughs> out, doesn't it? Gap Smith, Smith and Nephew, which also makes replacement hips, and Saga. Guess which one of those did best last year? Saga. No, it's Harley Davidson, mm. because all old people like driving around on... Uh, on very large motorbikes. I think it's a very bad film about that. I can't remember the name of it. It's called Wild Hogs. No, I knew you'd know that. <laughs> I, I knew you'd know that. I think that's what Bearble was talking about. Anyway, um, what he noticed this week is that iShares have launched uh, a, a uh, an ETF focused on this very issue, the iShares Aging Population ETF. The Grey Pound. The Grey Pound. There you go. Okay, thank you, Emma. Thank you, Ian. Uh, there's plenty more in the magazine this week, plenty more results that we haven't discussed here, plenty in the personal finance and fun section, which they will no doubt talk about on their podcast tomorrow. As I said, go listen to Algie Hall's podcast on uh, value detection and Emma's podcast, of course, with Aviva. Obviously, the usual comment from, uh, from uh, Simon Thompson and uh, Nicole Elliott, the trader, and Chris Dillo. And uh, yeah, even some more in the news section we haven't had a chance to discuss right now. So anyway... Thank you for listening. Pick up the magazine in all good news age, the value detectors, uh, or get online uh, and subscribe to the magazine and the website. Uh, and if you like this podcast, get onto iTunes and uh, give us a rating. 10 out of 10, please. Or is it five star? I don't 10 know. out of five stars. 10 out of five stars. That would do. Thank you, Ian. Okay. Thank you very much. And see you next. I actually won't see you next week. I'll see you in a couple of weeks because I'm on holiday. Goodbye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. 
Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.